During college, two of my friends and I decided that we needed to be better at memorizing scripture. We needed to be better at hiding God's word in our heart. And so we decided that we were going to meet midweek around 5 a.m. And together, the, the three of us, we studied a Baptist catechism together. And along with the catechism, you'll see there were references to verses that, that kind of um, gave evidence or proof to the questions asked throughout the catechism. And so we were going to take some of those verses each week and, and memorize them and hold one another accountable to memorizing these verses. And yet here was the catch. If one of us messed up, one of us, we all had to run three miles before class on Friday. Now, if that wasn't enough, the standard was absolute perfection. And you know how a group of guys get together and, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to hold one another accountable. The punishment's going to be that you have to run three miles before class. But when I say perfection, we also held one another accountable to this. You couldn't miss one word in reciting the verses. And not just one word, you know how we got carried away, you couldn't miss one punctuation mark. We started holding one another accountable with our NASB Bibles to commas and periods and semicolons. And if you missed one or forgot one, we all three had to run three miles that Friday before class. Now, I've talked to all the Awana leaders, and that is going to be a part of our new Awana strategy. So attendance will drop this week, I'm sure. It's joking. But how did it go? Well, we ran three miles every Friday that we did this. And each week it was the same thing over and over. No matter how close one of us got, we, one of us would eventually miss something. We would forget a word. We would miss a comma. We, we would miss a reference at times. And we ended up running a whole lot. Now, Here's why I share this, is all three of us began to dread this time. We began to hate it. And it was funny, the first time one of us missed a semicolon or a comma or a reference, and, and that was funny, oh man, we gotta run. We need to get in shape anyway. But over time, we began leaning in and actually becoming um, noticeably irritated with one another. And you would see it coming when someone would sort of pause and stop, and they're trying to recount, okay, what this word, this comma, this reference, well, what is it? And we would lean in, not with, come on, buddy, you got it, but you better get this right. You better not miss this. And there was sort of an irritation between the three of us. We wouldn't even talk to one another outside of this meeting because we became so irritated with one another. There was a palpable silence when we messed up. And you began to feel condemned and judged. And here was the more tragic outcome of all of that is I would open my Bible to memorize these verses and, and, and hate it. 
and be like, oh my goodness, I got to do this again. And then I got to meet with these guys again. And, and, and none of us wanted to just, just give up. But eventually we, we, we kind of got in one another's uh, head and began to explain, this is probably not good for us. And so we moved on from that. But for some of you, that's the same cycle and process you're in right now when it comes to spiritual things. You're probably not committing to things like that. But that's the way you think about spiritual disciplines. And your, your life in Christ is this sort of grueling spirituality where, where you've got to be perfect, where, where, where you can't mess up at all. The standard every week from Sunday to Sunday is get it right, get it right. People are leaning in. People are getting irritated with me. Jesus himself is in silent irritation saying, come on, don't mess this up. You got another chance to share the gospel. Don't mess it up. You got another morning to read the word. Don't mess it up. Are you praying enough? Don't mess it up. And you live with sort of this dread, what is the punishment going to be? It's kind of like eating right, and when every day turns into a cheat day, and you end the day just guilty and miserable and frustrated. And maybe that's how some of you feel today. And the tendency when you feel that way is to become apathetic about spiritual things to withdraw from the things of God, and even to become irritated when you, when you have to gather for worship, even to become almost frustrated when you open up the Word of God. And yet, Nehemiah chapter 9 gives us hope, and yet the chapter doesn't seem very hopeful at first. In chapter 9, we see this sort of similar cycle that we have in our own life when we're convicted of sin, and I'm going to try to get it right, and then I don't get it right, and then I feel guilty. We see this cycle with the people of Israel. Remember last week in chapter 8, the wall is finished. Nehemiah puts the city on lockdown. They've gathered for covenant renewal. They've heard the word of God and they've celebrated the goodness of God. And then in chapter nine, they're going to commit themselves to God anew. And we're gonna go through this chapter. I'm gonna summarize because I really wanna press home at the end one point. Notice verse one of chapter nine. Now on the 24th day of this month, right after the Feast of Booths was over, they're celebrating the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and, on, and with earth on their heads. Now, this is a posture of confession and repentance before God. They are fasting. They are doing without food. They are wearing sackcloth, which was very uncomfortable. And they have dirt on their heads, which is to symbolize judgment. God's judgment upon their sin. They are saying as they fast and do without and they're uncomfortable and they have dust on their heads. They are saying, this is what we deserve for our sin. We deserve to be wiped out. We deserve to be hungry. We deserve to be naked before God, left with nothing. And notice verse two, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
Now here, this is just symbolic because it is the people of God, Israel, that God has made a covenant with. And so they separate themselves symbolically to say we are accountable before God as God's people. But notice what they do. They confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now remember, last week there's already been this confession of sin. They've been brought low and they've been lifted up in celebration. And so what does this mean? Here they are acknowledging not that they are guilty of all the sins in the Bible that their forefathers committed. What they are acknowledging is we do not deserve to exist as a nation. We do not deserve to exist as a people. And if you look throughout history, God has been faithful to us, but we have a track record of being unfaithful. And so before they commit to God, they want to be reminded of how this has gone before, how this has gone since creation. What has this looked like? And in verse three, they stood in their place and read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. Again, this was their time of worship, six, at least six hours when they gathered to hear the word of God over and over. And they confessed and they worshiped to their God. And the, the, the section, first section ends here. They stood up and they blessed the Lord from everlasting to everlasting, his glorious name, which is exalted above all peoples in praise. And I just want you to notice that as they confess and as they repent, they are still engaged in worship. And there's this picture, we are brought low by our unfaithfulness, but God has never changed. God is good. God is right. He is exalted above everything. He is exalted above everyone. And then in verse 6, we, they, they begin to list God's goodness to them as a people. And this is what we're going to kind of summarize. In verses 6 and 8, they remember God's good, goodness to them in a promise. God, the creator of all things, things that you see, things that you don't see. In heaven, the highest part of heaven and the lowest part of earth, God created it all. This creator God made a promise to us. He chose a man who was worshiping the moon in Ur, and his name was Abram, and he adopted him, and he promised, Abram, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. You will be made into a great nation that will bless all nations, Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham, our father. Abraham. But notice verse 8. And you have kept your promise. No matter what has happened to Israel, sin, judgment, good kings, bad kings, we stand here today to say, You kept your promise. Why? For you are righteous. And remember, this is the point of Nehemiah. God has made a promise, and if he hasn't kept his promise, he's a liar, he's unrighteous. But they stand to declare, God, you've kept all your promises because you are good and you are right. But I want you to notice something as we move through the text. The promise comes first. God made a promise to Abraham before anything happened to Israel. He set his love upon him. 
He set his love upon Abraham, knowing his people would be high maintenance, knowing his people would be idolaters. And if you're a Christian here today, that's good news for you. Because God set his love upon you while you were a sinner. He knows you. And he knows you're going to be high maintenance. And he knows you're going to sin. And he knows you're not always going to get it right. But the promise comes first. And he will be true and right to his promise. Notice verses 9 through 11. We see that he is true to this promise when the descendants of Abraham end up as slaves in Egypt. And in verse 9... We read that he made himself a name. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day in Egypt. So your people are in bondage in Egypt and they cry out as slaves and God remembers his promise. I made a promise to Abraham and I'm going to fulfill it even though my people are in bondage in Egypt and he rescues them. He humiliates the Egyptian gods. He humiliates Pharaoh and he says, no other God is like me. I am who I am. I always do what I say and he delivers his people from Egypt. In Christ, God will make a name for himself by fulfilling every promise he has made to you in Jesus. Then verse 12 through 15, we see that God takes his people out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, he teaches them what it means to be his people. The text says that he gave them his presence. He gave them his instruction. He gave him He gave them his law. And a part of having the law, we read there, is that he gave them the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one of the things that set Israel apart from every other nation. They would work six days and rest one. And that meant rest. Rest and worship. You don't go out to the fields. Why? God will provide for us. The Sabbath was a sign of provision to God's people. We trust God to provide for us. We don't even have to work one day out of the week. God took them out into the wilderness to prove this to them. He provided food from heaven. And then verse 15 promised them, go possess the land that I swore to you, that you swore to them. Again, the promise just keeps coming. I made a promise to Abraham, I will fulfill it in Egypt, and then I will take you all the way to the land that I promised. And they remember God's, or or they're reciting God's goodness. But I want you to know what happens beginning in verse 16. They have all of God's goodness, the promise, deliverance, provision, and yet they forget it. Notice verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, meaning they abused your goodness. They took it for their own advantage. They thought they were entitled to it. They were amazed by it. This wonderful story, this wonderful history, this promise, this deliverance, this provision, and they forget all about it. In verse 16, they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Now, this would be shocking after all the goodness that that they had, and they disobeyed you. Why would you disobey the one who has made the promise and delivered you and provided all of your needs? Verse 17, they refused to obey, and here is why. They were not mindful 
of the wonders that you performed among them. And it wasn't as though they didn't know about them. They forgot and eventually didn't care. And so they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. They went to Aaron and said, will you take us back to Pharaoh, please? They took advantage of God's goodness. They were like donkeys. There's another really good word for donkeys. Out in the wilderness. They, they, they would not bow to God. They wouldn't lower their neck and follow God. They bowed up. We're not going. We're not doing what you say. And notice they want to go back to Egypt. They have a good father out in the wilderness, but they want to go back to Egypt. Why? They forgot God's goodness. This is like the kid in your home. And you give them food. You give them clothing. You give them shelter. And I would say most of you here today give them a lot of good stuff. Take care of them. And the moment they don't get to do that one little thing they really want to do, what do they say? You don't love me. You just don't want my good. That's the way Israel is acting out in the wilderness. After all I've done for you. Really? Seriously? Come on now. You don't love us. Pharaoh treated us better. He fed us better. The shackles, they were uncomfortable. But at least we had something to do every day. Really? You see how stupid and foolish that is? But that's the way we act when we forget God's goodness. Do you really love me? What Israel said in the wilderness is sin loves us more. We want to go back to sin and slavery. Notice next, we see they forgot God's goodness, and then we see they eventually reject God's goodness. In verses 17 through 21, the text communicates the way in which God bore or endured with his people 40 years in the wilderness, even though they pulled out a golden calf. As they had the presence of God and the commandments of God, they go and make a golden calf and begin to bow down to it. And then they began to say to one another, it's this golden calf that rescued us. It's this golden calf that takes care of us. Do you see how insulting that would have been to God after all he had done for his people? And so we would say, well, God should, should forsake them. God should get rid of them. He rescued them from Egypt. But the text even says, even so, in the wilderness, God continued to care for them. They had clothes that didn't even wear out. He gave them everything they needed. Why? Verse 17, the second part of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive. As as the people of God are engaged in sin, engaged in idolatry. The picture is God is on edge waiting to forgive them of it. That's his disposition toward his people. You are ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Now remember at the beginning of Nehemiah, this word for steadfast love, hesed, means God's unconditional commitment to his people. It is a word in Hebrew that is just packed with grace, faithfulness, mercy, love, 
grace, faith, I'll go through it again. It, it's just packed with all of those things because it's so hard to explain why God would be committed to sinful people. But because of your steadfast love, you made a promise to them, notice the text, and did not forsake them. You didn't leave them in the wilderness. Now, there were consequences for their sin. Some didn't make it to the promised land. But as a people, Israel was not forsaken in the wilderness. And in verses 22 through 25, we see eventually God's promise is fulfilled in the promised land. Their enemies are toppled. They enter the land, and the text says their children begin to grow. Descendants begin to multiply. They begin to thrive again as a nation. And the text says they enjoyed the goodness of the land. He, he took them into a land that was already cultivated. See, in God's wisdom, he allowed their enemies to cultivate the land and then just brought his people into the land, and everything was there ready for them. It was a turnkey. It's all here for you. You just come in and you enjoy the land. It's already cultivated for you. Verse 25, so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. They they delighted themselves in your great goodness in the land. They began to taste and experience all of the promises of God fulfilled, even though they didn't deserve it even though they should have been wiped out in the wilderness. And so you would think, in the land, all of the promises fulfilled, the promises to Abraham, the deliverance, the provision, God's presence with them, and now the land. And so we've learned our lesson. God, you are so good to us. Verse 25, 26. Nevertheless. (laughs) Nevertheless. Right? Think about that. All of God's goodness, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Same old story. Notice what they do this time in the land. They cast your law behind their back. In the land, they are supposed to obey God according to the law. They hide the law. The law is supposed to set them apart as God's people in holiness, and they hide it. We don't want to be holy. We don't want to be set apart. They become idolaters. And when the prophets come in and warn them, notice what they did. They killed your prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were a grace and a mercy from God who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. The prophets come in and they preach repentance. No, don't do this again. Learn from your history books. Don't be those people who enjoy God's goodness and yet still disobey him. No, he's been so faithful to you. Be faithful to God. And what do they do? They slit the prophet's vocal cords. We don't want to hear from God. We don't want to hear talk of his faithfulness. We want to do whatever we want. And notice, and they committed great blasphemies. The word for blasphemy is profanity. It actually means to bore holes in something. They bore holes in the name of God. That's how wicked their sin was in the land. Notice, if you go back and you see, they delighted themselves in goodness and and mercy and God's provision, and yet 
as much as they delighted themselves in his goodness, they were as wicked in their sin to plug their ears from God's word, to kill, even kill those who represented God's word to them, and to bore holes in the word that was to prevent them from blasphemy and profanity that set them apart as God's people. And so they did not learn their lesson. And in verses 27 through 31, we get to the time of judges. Now, the text says that God gave them saviors. Now, let's just move through this section, these four verses, 27 through 31. Notice verse 27. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. We see this throughout Judges over and over. The enemies of God, the Moabites, Ammonites, Philistines, they come in. They take the people of God over and make them suffer as judgment. But notice verse 27, and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Now, we would say, what gall. After all of your sin, after all of your wickedness, and then you're in a rough time, difficult time, the enemies of God have taken over. You, you, have, you are so prideful you would call out to God again like he's going to hear you. Really? Did you, and notice, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. Judges, men like Samson, Deborah, Gideon, who come in with tent pegs and the jaws of donkeys, and they begin to destroy the enemies of God and take over and rescue the people of God. Sort of like Old Testament Avengers. Over and over, God does that for his people. In verse 28, we get it now, right? But after they had rest, notice, they did evil again before you. They did evil again before you. And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them again. And yet they turned and cried to you and you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your great mercies. Despite what they deserve, you delivered them over and over and over again in verse 29. And you warned them in order that they would turn back to your law. And yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. They insert here in the law of God was life. In the law of God was joy. In the law of God was deliverance. And yet they turned a stubborn shoulder turned away and stiffened their neck. We will not obey you. In verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Again, mercy, but then again, and yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So again, just the point of reading all this is this cycle. Give them into their enemies. They cry out. You rescue them. They sin again. Give them into the hand of your enemies. They cry out. You rescue them. Verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. The purpose of this whole chapter is to see that cycle. Sin, consequences of sin, judgment. Cry out to God in confession. He's merciful and he's gracious again. And then what do we, what do, we do? Sin, 
consequences of sin, cry out to God. He's gracious and he's merciful and he forgives us and he rescues us again and again and again. Mercy, sin. Mercy, sin. Mercy, sin. God's mercy is relentless and it comes back and it comes back and it comes back again and again and again. God's mercy isn't reckless. It's relentless. It does not stop. It's intentional. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy follow is a bad translation. It means we'll track me down like a hunter all the days of my life. That's God's mercy to us. That's God's mercy to his people. And as we read earlier, verse 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That is the summary of what's going on here. This whole chapter right there. You've been righteous. You fulfilled your promise. You've been good. You've been merciful, but we have acted wickedly. In verses 34 through 35, we see that the people of God become slaves in the land that God had given them. There's a picture of where sin leads, right? We, we believe in our hearts sin leads to freedom. It never leads to freedom. I got to believe that. In my heart, I think the sin will make me free because I get what I want. And all it does is lead to bondage. Every time. This is where the people of God end. They they have some good kings. They have some bad kings. But the text says most of our kings defied you. Our leaders defied you. And here we are today. We're ruled by pagan nations in the good land that you gave us. Which is another picture of what it means to be in sin. God gives you so many good things. And instead of worshiping him... You use those things for yourself, and the goodness you have is possessed by sin, Satan, and death, and the enemies of God, and they begin to use it as shackles and bondage over you. What I mean by that, think about the goodness in your life right now. Money, time, family, resources, when those things aren't used for the glory of God, but are used for yourself and other goals and plans and motives and agendas, that is when the enemies of God have possessed the goodness of God in your life and you're not worshiping God, you're serving Satan, sin, and death. How much goodness in your life right now is stressed and worried Because it's insecure. Why? Because you think it's about me. And you're trying to hold it in. You're trying to use it for yourself instead of saying, thank you, God. Thank you. You've been good to me. But back to the worship service. Verse 38. They recount this history. God's goodness. Sin, judgment, God's goodness. Sin, judgment, God's goodness. God's goodness doesn't leave us. And so they say, verse 38, everybody zero in, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this, we're going to seal the deal today, God. You you bring out the documents. We're going to get the notaries. We're going to get the priests, the Levites, the princes, our leaders, 
They're going to come in and they're going to stamp their name on this covenant once and for all. You've been so good to us, God. We're going to commit to you. Notice, because of all of this. And here's the question, because of what? Because of what? Think through the story we just walked through. Because of this, we're going to commit to you today, God. We're going to make a covenant with you today, God, because of this. Because we learned our lesson. Because we just read in our history books that it never ends, sin never ends well. It never provides for us. Pagan kings are not good to us. Pharaohs, they don't take care of us. We learned our lesson. Sin doesn't end. We're willing to act right now. No, that's not why. Verse 33 again, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly because of this. This is why we commit. Because you have dealt faithfully. It's the faithfulness of God that leads to their commitment. You see, we read that and we think, oh, they're going to buck up and get it right now, right? Spoiler alert, Nehemiah doesn't end well. It does not end well. I'm still trying to figure out how to preach Nehemiah 13. And Nehemiah is pulling people's hair out. I don't get it. How are we going to do that? I don't know yet. But this doesn't end well, okay? So don't begin to think because we learned our lesson. No, it's because, God, you're faithful. What other choice will we have but to commit to the one who has a track record of faithfulness? It is God's faithfulness that leads to this covenant. God's faithfulness, get this, is not this generic, God is good to me. Oh, God, you're so good to me. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. It's just generic, God is good. Now, this is what God's faithfulness means. God is good despite your sin. And if you don't get that, you don't understand God's goodness. You don't understand God's faithfulness if you don't understand he is faithful to you despite your unfaithfulness. And it's because of this that they commit. What other choice do we have? You are faithful despite our sin. We we have to commit to you again. You're the one who takes care of us. We can't be trusted to get our act right. And maybe you're here today and you're in that same cycle. Sin, judgment, repentance, sin, judgment, repentance. Mercy, mercy, mercy over and over again. This is the way I feel, not just weekly, daily, but hourly. That same cycle. I forget God's goodness, just like God's people did. The fact that God would give me Jesus and then anything else is absolutely mind-blowing. I have a dog that thinks I'm amazing. What, I, w- I was looking at her the other day going, what in the, this, is, this doesn't even make sense that God would be so good to us in giving us things like animals. Yeah. And I know this isn't a plug for a vet company. <laughs> but God gives you, think about it. 
He has forgiven you of your sins. He's covered you in the righteousness of Christ. And he says you will be with him for eternity. If he did one more thing, he he allows you to drink sweet tea. Like, why in the world would he do anything else? You deserve to be in hell. You deserve to be in hell. I got in a car today and I pushed a button and it started. Why? I don't know. Why? I deserve to be in hell. But I forget that. And I say things to myself like, God, if you loved me, you would do this the way I want you to do it. You you would do what I say if you really loved me. I've given you Jesus. What do you mean if I loved you? I reject God's goodness. In his word, he tells us that sacrifice is better than self-centeredness. He tells us that we should forgive others. He calls us to, 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 to be set apart in holiness and godliness. And so often I reject that and say, no, I would be happier if you let me hold on to this grudge. I would be happier if I didn't have to be holy. I would be happier if you didn't call me to witness the gospel. I would be happier if you let me grumble and complain, gossip, slander. No, I reject his word so often. Why? Because I reject his goodness. His word is his goodness. And so often I trade God's goodness for the rule of sin in my life. Instead of stopping and thanking God, Thank you so much. And worship him for what I have. I think that the things he's given me are about me. And I turn those things into little idols. And I got to have more little idols instead of thank you, God. This is the cycle of sin we find ourselves in. And so the question for you today is, why in the world would you be here praising Jesus? Because you know all of those things in your life, right? It looks different. It happens in a different setting for you than me. But you know that about you. So why did you come here today? Are we a bunch of hypocrites worshiping Jesus? Why would we do that? We know these cycles in our own life. And what pride and audacity would we come here today and say, God, be faithful to me again, please. Be merciful to me again, please. God, you know me more than I know myself and all these other people around me. Why in the world would we come here again today and try to lay claim to the gospel of Jesus Christ? For you have dealt faithfully. And we have acted wickedly. That doesn't shock God. He said it in his word. What other choice do I have but to commit to the one who is most committed to me and has proven it over and over again? Story after story in the the Bible, story after story, chapter after chapter, leader after leader, character after character, story of unfaithfulness, sin, wickedness. Every story ends in faithfulness. And it is to lead us to the faithful one. This chapter leads us to Jesus because this cycle of sin in our own life is an endless abyss of despair until Jesus. Because of this, go back to the verse, because of this, we're almost done, because of this, the creator 
has become the promise in flesh to deliver his people from bondage in the cycle of sin once and for all. Jesus, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection redeems everyone who believes in him from the rule of death and the promises of sin to return all of God's good gifts that have been stolen and lost in the curse that we will enjoy forever. I'll post that on Facebook just so you get it. But Jesus is the faithful one who fulfills this whole chapter. He is the promise that takes on flesh. Jesus trusts the Father's goodness in place of those who abuse it. Jesus is meekness and humility in the place of those who are stiff-necked and stubborn. Jesus obeys in the place of the disobedient. Jesus surrenders in place of those who reject the word of God. Jesus gives his life for those who take his life in sin. Jesus hears and fulfills God's law for those who turn a deaf ear to it and hide it. Jesus is pure, devoted worship to the Lord for idolaters. Jesus remembers those who forget God's goodness. Jesus is the faithful son for the unfaithful. Jesus keeps the covenant for the covenant breakers. Jesus, in obedience, seals the covenant we have with God with his blood. Where else are you going to go? Try to do better? Try harder? Pray more? Where else are you going to go but Jesus? He is your only hope. And by faith, everything he is and all he has done becomes yours. Where else are you going to go but to the covenant Jesus has made with you? Jesus isn't asking you to make a new covenant with God today. He is asking you to remember the one he's already made with God for you. Believe it today. Trust in it today. Because today, I know we all find ourselves in that same old story. Maybe today you're thinking about your past. A cycle of sin in your life. Sin you just can't get out of your life. And it just haunts you and it's there. Maybe you're convicted of new sin today. You didn't even know you were sinning in a certain way. And now you feel guilty for it. Maybe today you've never believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. And maybe you're just trying harder. Let me just tell you, that's not going to lead to anywhere good, and it's certainly not going to lead to Jesus. You're going to be tempted to be apathetic and withdrawn from the things of God, and you're going to get tired, and you're going to walk into this place, and you're going to feel everybody looking at you, don't mess up, don't mess up. That's not where we want to go today. Maybe you're here today and you say, can I really come to Jesus again? Where else are you going? To go. But Jesus, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9, he is faithful. He's committed to his word and he is just. You know what it means? He's just. When you confess your sin, he has to forgive you because he said he would. And if he doesn't, he's a liar. But he's not a liar, he's holy. He's committed to his name. And if you come today and confess your sin, he'll restore to you the joy of your salvation. He's not frustrated he has to meet with you again. He's not making sure you get every comma and semicolon right. 
He's not irritated that he's going to have to cover up something you've done this week. No, he's on edge to see you delight in the work he's already done. You see, God is faithful to his name. And today, he wants to be famous in forgiving you of your sin. Because we so often come to the grace of God and the mercy of God, and we think, I'm going to, I'm going to drink from this fountain, and, and when, I, when I stick my head in this fountain of God's goodness, grace, and mercy, God's going to be lacking something now. He's going to be without something. No, what God would say to you today is that there is this fountain, and it is a never-ending fountain of mercy, grace, love, kindness, specifically to those who have been unfaithful. If you are here today and you would stand up and say, I've been faithful all week, you can't come. You can't come to Jesus today. It is for the one who would stand up and say, yes, I've been unfaithful. And he is standing on edge, delighting for you to come to the fountain. 